Well, I love that last line from Coldplay. I mean, the whole song, who am I, what matters, the clock is ticking, and, and home is where I want to be. And, and home for many of us represents a place of being in tune and things mattering and being in touch with, with just meaning and joy and purpose. So in this series, we've been talking about getting in tune with reality, getting in tune with joy, even getting in tune with God. Let's take a moment and think about, like, what does it really mean to be at home what really is enough? What are we looking for? And how do you find meaning and purpose? Think of it this way. For many of us, we've tried lots of things, right, to find meaning and purpose. For some of us, it's like, you know, I think I would be happy if I just had more. Or more what? I don't know, but just more. I had one, and then that was pretty good, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe two would be nice. I had two of those things, and I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe three. And three was good, and if three is good, it's kind of like ice cream. If a little's good, a lot's better. So I'm like, well, I want more and more. And we just kept searching for how much is enough and how do we find meaning and purpose? How much is enough? And, and what's going to satisfy my soul? And pretty soon, it got so busy that we said, no, no, I need more rest. <laughs> maybe I need some rest. Rest here and maybe some rest here. And maybe rest didn't satisfy. We got retired and we got bored. So maybe the problem isn't more and isn't even more rest. Maybe the problem is I just need to get the tempo different in my life. Maybe, maybe I need to set the tempo differently. You know, I've had times in my life the tempo is at 80. I think, I think if I just had a little more excitement going on, some things that maybe are new challenges, if I just maybe up the tempo to 90. Oh, 90 is pretty good. Well, maybe 100. Well, if 100 is good, how about 120? And if 120 is good, one, how about 140? And pretty soon it's like, whoa, 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 more, more tempo didn't work. Maybe I need less tempo. Maybe it's more slowness in my life, more quietness in my life. That didn't seem to fully and finally satisfy either. Mm. So we said volume, that's what I need. If I could just, it's not, it's not things, it's not tempo, it's volume. If I just had some, some F in my music. Maybe if I had double F in my music. No, no, I need three Fs, four Fs, five Fs. When is enough? See, I'm not sure we know how deep our souls are. But all the time we're asking, where do I find joy? And how much is enough? And sometimes it's not things or speed or volume. It's just I'd like more control. And if I could just get control of that person's attitude or get control of, of this relationship that's going out of control, if I just had some control, then it would be enough. Or maybe it's more comfort. There's just some things going on in my life that I don't like, and I would do anything to get rid of them. If I just had more comfort, that would be enough. Or maybe it's a number. If I just weighed this number, if I just had this number of kids, this number of salary, this number of territories, that would be enough. Here's my challenge. Every once in a while, you hit one of these things and you have a moment. And in that moment, it's like, yeah, this is it. If I could just hold on to that moment, it would be enough. But you can't hold on to that moment. 
You might try and control people and circumstances to get a hold of that moment, but that moment, as sweet as it is, it's fleeting. It does not fully and finally satisfy. So in our pursuit of getting in tune with what really matters, how much is enough? And how deep is your soul? Now, I got to tell you, I have listened to that song maybe a hundred times in the last three years. And as, as I've shared with you, it, it has brought so much freedom to me, as powerful as that song is. But I, I mentioned the last three years have just been ruthless in challenges I've had with my wife being on her back for a year and two back surgeries and challenges with an autistic son. And the whole time I'd be praying and I'd be hoping just if I just could get a little bit more management here or a little bit more health there or a little more pain there, it would be enough. And those were all good things, right? Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. And I would just realize I was setting myself up, causing anxiety, trying to control everything and fix everything and making things that were unfixable, fixable. And I'd put that song on again. And I can't tell you how God used that song from The Greatest Showman while I'm riding my bike through the neighborhood or while I'm listening on my phone when I'm going to bed, and God would just remind me, Chad, there's no one thing, as good as it might be, that's going to be enough. And it just was such an incredible reminder to me of how to realign myself, that I'd put myself in the place of God, trying to control things that couldn't be controlled, fix things that couldn't be fixed, and I need to fire myself from the job I was unqualified for, which is ruling the universe. And that song became such a powerful tool in me finding freedom and peace in the midst of chaos. And I want that for you too. Oh, I want that for you too. To realize that your soul is so deep that if you want freedom and peace, it's going to start from realizing that there's not anything that's going to fully and finally satisfy in fact, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about dissonance. Dissonance is what happens when you get out of alignment with the truth. And to be out of alignment with truth is to be out of alignment with God, who is the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth. And when you think you can control things that only God can control, I promise you, you're going to drive yourself crazy and the people with you and live with you. You try and live a, a perfect life, but you're not capable of being perfect, you're going to drive yourself crazy. And a lot of things we struggle with that you've made promises to and you've talked to psychologists, you've talked to counselors, and, and they had some hints, but nothing really worked. I'm going to give you a word that you never hear talked about, ever, ever, ever. It's an ancient, dusty word. We're going to pull it out of the vault, as Ryan did last week. And, <coughs> and the word is blasphemy. The word blasphemy simply means putting yourself in the place of God. And when you put yourself in the place of God, oh my goodness, it causes such dissonance in you and it will keep you from the things you really want, freedom and joy and peace. And this little ancient word that used to be talked about a lot and no one even mentions anymore is the secret to getting back in tune with truth. Let me give you an example of just some of the symptoms of different areas you never would have thought were related to blasphemy that you could find incredible freedom from. Here's a couple. Pride. When you decide that you're the one that determines what's right and wrong, 
oh, your parents said it, your grandparents said, ancient wisdom has said this is not a good idea, you're going to reap what you sow, the consequences over there, and you say, no, 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 that's good for other people, but I think I'll be fine. It won't hurt me. What happens? <laughs> Just like everybody before you for the last 200 years, you put yourself in the place of God determining what's right and wrong, and sure enough, it didn't work out real well. Control. When you tell yourself, when you set yourself up with expectations to control people and circumstances, you know the two things that don't get controlled real well? People and circumstances. And you put yourself in the place of God and it drives you and other people crazy. Because in your heart, you've set yourself up to be God. You know why you struggle with, with being free and forgiveness? You know why we judge other people? It's because we put ourselves in the place of God. It's my job to dole out who's worthy of forgiveness and who's not. They're not going to get away with it. They shouldn't get away with it, right? I can't forgive myself, you might say to yourself. God might say he forgives me. I've heard something that people mention in the Bible. But I can't forgive myself because of what I did or how long it went on. And what have you done? You can't forgive yourself, and you're struggling with self-hatred, or I'll never forgive myself for this kind of attitudes because of blasphemy. Freedom for yourself, freedom to not retell the story with other people, it comes from this. You ever met self-righteous people who just think they're a little better than other people? Because their standard of conduct is the standard of conduct. And they struggle with these things, but these things are little things. The things they do right <clears throat> are the right things. Thank you very much. Blasphemy. They've set themselves up as the standard. Self-credit. Everything I have is because of me. Didn't get it from my parents. Didn't get it from my first boss. Didn't get it from my job opportunity. Didn't get it from being born in America, being the freest place in the whole world. No, no, no. Didn't get from any of that. It's all me. Oh, wow. You're the source of everything. Putting yourself in the place of God. One of the psychological terms we hold a lot is codependency, being a rescuer of someone with an addiction or someone with depression or somebody who, who has an ailment. Codependency is blasphemy. I put myself in the place of God, and my job is now to fix somebody else, to make somebody do something they don't want to do. I'm the provider of their happiness. I'm the provider of their joy. <laughs> How's that working out for you? It's time to fire yourself. Blasphemy. Today I want to tell you two things. A story, and I want to give you three steps on ways in which you can be free from this ancient idea that keeps us from finding freedom. Today I want to tell you a story of a guy who, uh, in a real blatant way, found himself putting himself in the place of God. Here's the story. It's how we all do it, but it's really how he did it. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He was an actual character in history. He was in charge of an incredible kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, maybe you've heard in history class, the Babylonian gardens and things like that. But what we learn about him in history is also mirrored or supplemented by what we learn in the Bible. And there's a guy named Daniel, you may have heard from him in the Bible, and Daniel was a prime minister, so to speak, in the Babylonian kingdom under King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is just growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and expanding. It's just never enough, keeps getting bigger, growing never enough, keeps getting bigger. And one day the king has this terrifying dream. And he turns to Daniel and says, Daniel, I just had this terrifying dream. Can you tell me what the dream was and what it means? He's like, sure, king, I can. He goes, well, in your dream you saw a tree. which grew and it became big and strong. And that king is you. That tree is you, O king. You've grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown. It's reached to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. But you're taking all the credit. You're setting yourself up as God. You're trying to control the people. And it's not going to end well unless you change your trajectory of putting yourself in place of God. Here's kind of how the story goes. The dream is out of a tree. There's this tree, and it's a massive tree, so much so that uh, there's all kinds of birds, and birds represent people in different kingdoms. This, this kingdom had grown so large that people all over the world, you know, sing music in these trees, there's happiness, there was joy. A lot of people were being provided by this tree. There was fruit in this tree, a sign of his expansion and, and the trade and all the ways the Babylonian Empire was growing and expanding. There's little critters and animals that would come around this tree. However, the bigger the tree got, the less and less satisfied the king was. And the bigger the tree got, the more and more he took credit for everything that happened in it. You know people like this. They started the company humbly. Things were going really well. And then they just got more and more full of themselves, reading their own press. They got more and more out of tune with the truth. Dissonance. And they started to destroy the very things that they had created. Well, in this dream, along comes a watcher. Think of it like a spiritual creature and maybe an angel. And the watcher comes and he brings in an axe. And he says, it's time to chop down the tree. Ding! A little sparkly on the axe. And sure enough, he says, if you don't change your trajectory, this arrogance, this blasphemy, it is going to knock down all the things you think are important. And you're going to end up, they put a ban around the tree. They said the banner around the tree is a representation that if you will change trajectory, if you'll kind of fire yourself from this job, if you'll go back to giving God credit and letting him be in control of things and being humble, God will regrow the stump of that tree. So that's the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, oh, I don't want to be that guy. All right. So he begins to kind of realign himself, but not really. Not really. And what we're going to learn from Nebuchadnezzar are three ways at which we're susceptible to blasphemy and putting ourselves in the place of God and three ways we can diagnose it and three ways that we can move forward with it. Let's look at the first way. The first way is listen to the songs you sing when your life's going well. What are the songs you sing to yourself during prosperity? You ever listen to what you say to yourself? What, what, what are the... What are the the lines you say to yourself what's the music you play to yourself when things are going really really well the, the, the tree is big the, the kingdom is expanding what is the music you play what are the lyrics you hear maybe like oh I know the lyrics you're so vain I bet you think the song is about you don't you don't you right everything you did it all Everything you get credit for. Wow, look how smart you are. Look how important you are. Look how you're at the right time. And some of it's true. But if you listen to the songs you sing during prosperity, you may be on your way to blasphemy. And what's going to happen is in all the things you care about, your marriage, your kids, your company, how many people do we know in history who began to sing a song to themselves about how important they were and they lost it all because they thought it won't happen to them even though it happened to everybody else in human history. What songs do you sing during times of prosperity? Here's Nebuchadnezzar's. It's been 12 months since the dream. He's walking out in Babylon one day 
And he's just looking at the gardens in Babylon. He's looking at all the things that have been accomplished through his kingdom. And here's what it says. It came about the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he's had 12 months to change trajectory. He's walking in the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke saying, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Do you hear the song he sings during prosperity? Me, 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 me. Right? There it is. Me, I, me, my, 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 me, me. It's me. It's just me, me, me everywhere. And if we're not careful, that song starts like a hum and we don't recognize it. Then it begins to be caught in the back of our head and we don't recognize it. And we don't recognize it until the song is so powerful it begins to destroy things. Everybody else knows, by the way. Your spouse knows. Your kids know. Your boss knows. Your employees know. But you don't hear the music. See, when I was 21, I got my first big job out of college. And I was ecstatic. Like, I was making more, like $25,000, than my dad made in his entire career as an uh, elementary school teacher. And I was just humbled and thrilled. And I was both a, a video production major and I was a pastoral major. I got two BAs in college. And so I was the first, one of the first to produce a video resume. So I got this job because I produced this video resume and had me teaching over here and some family stuff over here and video toaster stuff, creating all kinds of graphics. And so that really helped me get a foot in the door and, and get this job at this kind of big church down in Atlanta. And I remember about six months into it, I started hearing the hum. We were listening to this speaker who came to our church and he said, do you have a subtle sense, or not so subtle, that this organization is lucky to have you? Because of your skills and your wisdom. For that matter, your spouse lucky to have you because of how hard you work. I mean, you're a 10. You know, he's about an 8. <laughs> that subtle song, and I remember hearing that speaker, and I remember, I don't typically get down on my knees, but I remember getting down on my knees and saying, God, I hear the voice of arrogance. Forgive me. Shut off that song. Six years later, I left that church. I went to another church I got beat up pretty bad at. And I was kind of doing a 360 review on myself to figure out what was broken in me. And I went back to one of my previous employees. We were having lunch one day, and I said, can you help me figure out, like, I want to figure out what part's my environment in this job, what part's me. And he said, well, Chad, in general, I think it's the environment based on what you're saying. But there's one thing I never had the guts to say to you when I worked for you. This doesn't sound like it's going to be good news. He said, it wasn't a lot of time, but there, was, there were moments that showed up regularly enough. I just think you were arrogant. So I began working really, really hard to stay humble and to be humble and to give credit where credit was due. I was doing a conference about five years ago in Chicago about kind of my technique for creativity and, and teaching and just had a great time. Met with people all over the world, really, who were trying to figure out how to do church in a unique way. And then they do feedback afterwards. And in general, I got really high feedback and people really enjoyed it. But one thing they came back on in this feedback was there's just a few moments that Chad seemed kind of arrogant. By this point, I was proud of my humility. <laughs> I had worked really hard on my humility. 
And I went back and watched the tape, and I was like, oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. Listen to the tunes you sing when you're in prosperity. It's the first step to save that tree and that kingdom that God's entrusted to you. What's the second one? Well, the second one, which we get out of this passage, is uh, when you amplify yourself, it causes feedback. And feedback will drive you and everyone else crazy. So, if you've ever been around any microphones or any musicians, you know what happens. People are going to be playing, and they got a vocal pickup, and so on the vocal pickup, they decide they're going to, what, magnify themselves so everybody can hear it. The big old speaker system. So here's our big old speaker. The problem is, the person decides to stand right in front of the speaker. So what happens is, they make a signal, goes into the speaker, which makes a signal, which gets picked up by the amplifier, and it begins to cause that wonderful sound we all love called feedback. Right? Feedback's not coming, coming out of this thing. And if you hear feedback, <laughs> is this on? Donk, donk, donk. Right? Drives you crazy. Amplifying yourself leads to feedback, and feedback drives you and the people around you crazy. just does. That's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. God warned him. If you keep singing this song, it's going to drive you crazy, and you're going to lose the kingdom, and it's going to be seven years, seven times, you're going to lose the kingdom because you amplified yourself, drove yourself crazy, and everyone around you. That's exactly what happens. So here's what happens in the passage. Just as the dream predicted 12 months earlier. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times will pass over you until you get humble, until you know that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he chooses. And that very hour, when he sang that song to himself, me, 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 he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. You're like, really, Chad? Really? You're telling me that the king of Babylon, historic Babylon, became a cow? Well, he didn't become a cow, but he began to act like a cow for seven years. In fact, unrelated to the Bible, history reports that for some reason, they don't mention it in the Babylonian exile uh, documents, King Nebuchadnezzar took a seven-year vacation where his second command is in charge for seven years. That's how the history records it. The Bible tells you what was happening is that he began to lose his mind. Amplifying himself drove him crazy and everybody around him. And he literally went crazy and began to eat grass like an ox and a cow. His fingernails grew out. That's what happens. You ever seen the Guinness Book of World Records, those long fingernails? You don't grow your, uh, cut your fingernails for seven years? And you might say, Chad, this is why I don't believe in the Bible. I mean, you want me to believe that that really happened and that's really true. People don't turn into cows. We didn't turn into a cow. But he lost his mind and thought he was a cow. Chad, that didn't help much. Here's my challenge to you. Google it. Bovanthropy. 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 You can do it right now if you want. You can do it later if you're paying attention to me, which is nice if you are. Um, <laughs> psychological studies have found all through history, this is an actual psychological disorder, bovanthropy, where someone begins to think they're a cow and act like a cow. 
They've recorded all through history. King Nebuchadnezzar is the most famous, but there's several recorded in uh, British literature by the uh, psycho- uh, Psychological Society there, several American um, psychological studies. But this is what happened. He amplified himself, and it drove him literally crazy, as well as the people around him. You might say, well, Chad, I'm not thinking about, you know, working for Chick-fil-A or anything. You know, I'm not going to eat more chicken kind of thing. No. But I tell you, you'll drive yourself crazy. You amplify yourself. You'll drive the people around you crazy. You'll drive your first wife, second wife, third wife, second husband crazy because you sing those songs to yourself all the time and you amplify yourself all the time and you won't have that job. Some will eventually find somebody who isn't all about them and they don't get rid of all the blame and take all the credit. That's what happens. I was talking to a family this week who may not be bavanthropy, but it's the same principle. Very arrogant, arrogant guy in the family. A father-in-law who just for years, he's the know-it-all, knows everything, corrects you with everything, tells you what you should have known, didn't do, shouldn't have done. And for whatever reason, just snapped. Been going on for years, but just snapped this year. Diagnosing with bipolar, but that wasn't necessarily the symptoms that they saw before, but they said, well, maybe this will help, but he refused to get medicine. I don't need medicine. I don't have a medical problem. And just outbursts and cursing and things that are totally out of alignment with who he pretended to be or thought he was. His family members are cutting off relationship, and he doesn't have access to people that he's hurting. He's losing his kingdom. He might be a cow, but he's in the barn. And he's lost the things that matter to him. Are you amplifying yourself a little too much in your marriage? Look at how I give, 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 and all she does is take, 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 right? That's, we all say it. We all do it. Listen to the songs. Realize amplifying yourself will drive you crazy because of the feedback of amplification of yourself. Thirdly, Here's the powerful thing about Amplifier. God does want to amplify you. He does want to create an incredible kingdom for you in your marriage, in your family, in your business. All you need to do is real simply put the microphone in the right spot. You position a microphone in the right spot compared to a a speaker, it's powerful. We got speakers up here. If I stuck my microphone right in front of that thing, it would be like every bad movie you always saw with the feedback. You put those microphones here and here and here, and my goodness, we can fill a room, fill a stadium full of 10,000, 30,000 people. When you humbly say, God, I am so thankful for my gifts. I'm so thankful for my opportunities. I'm so thankful for what you're doing and have done in my life. And I put myself in the proper place. God, I want people to be happy, but I'm not in charge of people being happy. God, I want things to go smoothly, but I can't control whether or not they do go smoothly. That humility is putting the microphone of your own voice and your own talents and your own skills in the proper place and letting God amplify you and let God magnify your life. What would it look like for you in the different arenas and kingdoms of your life to put your microphone in the proper place? It's been seven years now since that dream. Seven years since he's been growing out his fingernails and chewing cud like a cow. And he finally decides to put his microphone in the proper place. Here's what it says. At the end of that time, seven years, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, now he's speaking. He says, Daniel, write this down. This is me. I want people to know I'm saying this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God. I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an eternal dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. He says, guys, I can tell you my story. I didn't even believe in the Jewish God. I didn't believe in the God of the Bible. But I was restored to my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added to me. My life got better when I got humble. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All their works, all his works are truth. I'm back in line with truth. And his ways are justice. And look at this last line. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Take it from a cow. <laughs> Take it from a cow. You can be proud of everything, but where'd you get your talents? Where'd you get your health? Where'd you get your opportunities? Where'd you get your skills? Where'd you get your brain? This morning, where'd you get the breath that comes in and out of you? Where'd you get your consciousness? I had a great conversation uh, about two weeks ago. Somebody at our church didn't even know they attended. They've been coming about five years. They said, we've been hiding. I said, well, well, it was nice to meet you finally. And she's a leader who just has a huge influence and a huge kingdom here in our community. And she said, the last couple of years have been really, really challenging. COVID, other challenges, business decisions we have to make. Our increased pluralistic society where people not agreeing on different things. And I'm trying to lead in unity with all these different voices. I said, well, that's exactly what Daniel did. Daniel's serving in Babylon. They don't agree on a lot of stuff. And he's learning how to be a leader in the midst of a culture that's antagonistic toward his values. And she began to describe with such incredible humility why she felt like God has placed her here at this time, how the team she's designing, the, the way in which they're leading, how she just has felt like God has got his hand on her life. And she said, Chad, we've been coming for several years, and I can't tell you what Horizon is doing in my husband's life, in my kids' life who love coming to our church, and in my life. What I'm learning from our services, our exploring services, and our equipping services is equipping me to lead my kingdom. It's not a Christian kingdom, but I'm a Christian in that kingdom trying to lead people into unity and into excellence. I just thought of exactly... What Nebuchadnezzar did when he humbled himself. God wanted to have a great kingdom. People, birds could sing and people could be provided for. He just had to put his microphone in the proper place. Who doesn't want to expand their kingdom to make a difference and have significance? But what Nebuchadnezzar had to do is what you and I have to do return to God. Returning to God is really retuning with God. If God is the ultimate reality, therefore he's the source of truth, there are ways in which we are out of alignment with truth. When you get back in alignment with truth, you can be back in alignment with God. So returning to God is really getting yourself back in tune with God. Let's go back to that original list. What would it look like in those original symptoms I gave you of those who struggle with blasphemy, putting themselves in the place of God, to still want good things but not play the role of God? If pride is something you struggle with, it's saying, God, maybe it's something you have to do every day. God, you know better than me. I can fool myself. I can trick myself. I can talk myself into anything. 
And I tell you, as a pastor, people can talk themselves into anything. I have heard it all. He said, God, I'm going to trust your warnings. You got warnings, Nebuchadnezzar did. I'm going to trust your warnings. Maybe you struggle with control. You have to say, I'd like people to be happy. I'd like this to go this way. But every day, you have to realign yourself with truth. I cannot control people and circumstances. So God, help me be an influence where I can. But trust you to be in control. Judging. God, I'm going to let you be the judge so I can be free. It's exhausting keeping track of everybody's sins and everybody's grievances. You can be free yourself because you can say, even if I don't want to forgive me, the God of the universe forgives me. I think I'll go with his opinion over mine. 30 years of beating yourself up, 20 years of telling yourself the story of what shouldn't have happened and why you shouldn't have done it and why it was your fault. Maybe it's time to be free. Maybe it's because you're angry at somebody else. You say, God, I can't keep track of that scoundrel anymore. You be judge. You take care of it. I don't want to carry that burden. And you are free from the burden of blasphemy. Maybe it's self-righteousness. Maybe everything good that comes out of you, you give him credit for. Thank you. Thank you for my kingdom. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my husband. Thank you for my opportunities. God, everything good I see coming out of me is because of what you're doing in me. I want more of that while I'm giving more credit to you. What kind of a kingdom would that build? Self-credit. Everything I have is because of you. Self-righteous. Everything good in me comes from you. And codependency, today may be the day. You've read like 100 books on codependency. And they haven't really helped much. We give some boundaries maybe. Maybe today's the day to resign being someone else's God. We live in the most codependent society I have seen in the history books in years. Everyone is delighted to make you their God. Your job is to make them happy, provide for them financially, take responsibility for their bad mistakes. Today may be the day to go, no more putting myself in place of God. I quit being someone else's God. Here's what's beautiful about that. The one person who was God, who came to earth as God... Jesus, he talked about a kingdom all the time. Like his main subject was the kingdom of God. He came to build a kingdom, to grow a kingdom, to expand a kingdom. And you know what? He had a tree. He was actually crucified on a tree for his claims about his kingdom. And you know what he was crucified for? Blasphemy, claiming to be God. And he was. So the one guy who was God, who claimed to be God, was killed for those claims. And how did Jesus, God on earth, behave? Humble. Served. Helped. And sacrificed. You know what God is like? He's not all puffed up. God is filled with humility. He loves to expand other people's kingdoms. And he even died on a tree to expand his kingdom. And we're here today because the one person who shouldn't have been killed for blasphemy or shouldn't have been hurt for blasphemy died for your and my blasphemy. So what does this look like firsthand? I'd like you to hear the story of somebody you see up here all the time. You've been inspired by him. You've been impacted by him, but you may not know him real well. So we're going to invite my friend Dave Lewis to come on up. And I'd like you to hear his story, what God's been doing in his life last four or five years. 
You know him as the guy who plays the piano and can sing just about any kind of music. But Dave, that's not where you've been over the last five years, is it? No, it hasn't. It was a, it was a struggle at the beginning. Uh, about five years ago, a little over five years, I was working five or six days a week, uh, playing six or seven nights a week. I was 100 pounds overweight. Uh, I had just had a major back surgery and I was diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, I was unhealthy. I was depressed. Uh, spiritually? Spiritually, spiritually I, I, had, I had no idea that I could ever have a conversation with God or that I could, you know, ask him for help. Uh, I wasn't a good dad. I wasn't a good husband. Uh, it, was, it was very emotional to think mm. back about it and think where, where it started. Uh, I just... Uh, I felt like the entire world, the weight of the world was on my shoulders and I didn't mm. see, I didn't see a way out. I didn't mm. know how to get out of it. And, uh, and you may not have gotten a dream, but you did get a, a couple phone calls. Of God I did. Maybe. Todd, Todd called me a couple times and Todd, he had Todd's asked our me, sound director who coordinates <laughs> he, our band. Yeah. And he had asked me to come out and try out for the position here at uh, Horizon. And I said, of course, I said no <laughs> every time because Sunday was my day where I would sleep and rest and Crystal and the kids would go to church without me and then I would stay home and sleep off the night before and get ready to do more of the same craziness all over again every week and uh, it was that year at Christmas time Todd called back and said uh, he goes here's the material you're going to do this week and here's the song you're going to sing and this is the schedule and that time he didn't ask he said he needed me so I said yeah I'm going to I'll be there and I remember uh, showing up for the for the gig and going through the rehearsal and everybody was so welcoming and so nice here at the church and uh, I was still very nervous and uncomfortable and uh, I remember uh, the performance of this song uh, I just I had never felt like that in my life on a stage and I had done it full time since I was 16 years old and mm -hmm. I'd never had that feeling and I you uh, said it was like plugging into a light socket yeah it was like somebody plugged me into a light socket I just I had I had all this energy and I couldn't stop crying I had tears flowing out of my eyes instead of standing there alone on stage after I was done with the performances people just came up and started hugging me and introducing themselves and thanking me for being there and singing hmm. and uh, I realized that I wasn't alone hmm. and it was uh, uh, amazing amazing feeling I so, it it was it was it still wasn't easy it still wasn't easy it was difficult the workload was hard here uh, because I learned more songs than I had ever learned in my life for each week, you know, and for each, and still working during the day. And uh, I remember coming in about six months into it and telling Todd that I was going to give him my notice so I could, he could find somebody else. And he seriously looked at me and said, that's not how we do things here. Hmm. He's like, I'm sorry, you're not, I don't take your, I don't take your, your family. notice. Your right? family, he yeah. Said, that, your that's family. not how we do it. And he that's said, right. yeah, uh, he went back and talked with Albert and Kenny, and uh, they came out and said they had no idea I was struggling, and they started helping me with my music and teaching me how to play and sing all over again, and uh, so I could memorize the songs. And I remember talking to you and getting memory aids on how you remember for your, you know, your services, and I it helped all the way around. Uh, Albert taught me a better way to eat and be healthier, uh, and you know. And now you're around church all the time. You're starting to hear about God, his promises, his love for you. And so tell me about how your God journey ends with you ending up in the pool out here. 
Well, uh, it was like a year and a half later than that, and I had lost 100 pounds and uh, was much healthier, taking less medicine. Uh, my focus was better, everything here. And I was, my, my journey with God, I started wanting to know more, and I wanted to learn more and ask, you know, from my brothers and sisters here at the church to help me out. And then I decided I wanted to let everybody else know. And when I did that, I asked if Chad would baptize me here at the church. And he baptized me. And I got baptized with a lady that was sitting in the front row. Uh, she was right ahead of me when we went through. And she turned around and she said, I was here on your first day. She mm. said, when you sang your song, and she said, you were glowing. Mm. You looked like you were glowing. It was a, uh, it was a great feeling mm. to remember why I wanted to be there. Well, I asked Dave when we talked about this service about two months ago. I said, Dave, if you would share your story, I think it would be awesome for us to hear it. And then you can pick any song you want. <laughs> what song represents what God's done in your life? And uh, what song did you pick? I picked Changed by Rascal Flatts. Let's hear that together. That was awesome. Thank you. That was awesome. I love you. Let's pray for Dave. Maybe... That was awesome. Maybe you want some of that. And maybe wherever you are, you feel like you're lost in some ways. Or maybe you've got it all. And just realizing it's not satisfying the way Nebuchadnezzar did. Uh, Jesus says he's welcome. He invites all of us to change. Why don't you just pray with me as I pray for Dave. Maybe you want to say, God, uh, I want some of that. <laughs> and I, uh, I fire myself from playing God. And I accept your gift of Jesus coming to God on earth. Thank you for dying for me. And I want access to some of that joy and some of that peace that I see in Dave. Father, we thank you for Dave. We thank you for his friendship. We thank you for his talents. We thank you for how he uh, serves us and how he motivates us and how uh, blessed we are because of him. We thank you for him and the whole team. In Jesus' name, amen. See you all next week. Thanks, man. Give me a hug. Thank you. Mm. Awesome job.